Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, everyone, I think we'll make a start of it. Um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all here today to the book launch, uh, Griffith Asia Institute book launch for Ian Hall's Modi and the Reinvention of Indian Foreign Policy. Uh, Ian certainly is well known to, I'm sure, everyone in this room. I'm putting my sandwich uh, down. I'm stopping yeah, chewing. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> He's like Modi, I have to be very aware of the camera. <laughs> I'm not quite as good as Modi. Yeah. You've got your sleeves properly I know. Up. Yes, yes, I do. I've got my... Yes, you my need Modi. A, I need a Modi coat. Court, though, yeah. Modi coat, yeah. yeah. Actually, sorry, could you hold the book up? Oh, yeah. Oh. Oh. Do you want to actual photo? Okay, we had more copies, you know. <laughs> so I will circulate this. Um, so this is our second book launch this year. We just decided that uh, we have we have a lot of, of course, really productive scholars here, and we'd like to call uh, greater attention to their work individually. And um, so we we first did David's nice book on civility, and now Ian is next up. And in fact, next week we'll do Renee um, with her with her book. So Ian is Professor of International Relations uh, here at Griffith. He's also Deputy Director, as, as you will know, for research of the Griffith Asia Institute. He's an academic fellow of the Australian India Institute at the University of Melbourne and co-editor with Sarah Davies of the Australian Journal of International Affairs. He has authored or edited six books and many, many articles and chapters. Seven. Uh, seven. Wow. We're out of date. Yeah, seven books. Um, Many, many articles and chapters uh, in such journals as Asian Survey, European Journal of International Affairs, International Affairs, and Review of International Studies, among many others. So, Modi and the Reinvention of Indian Foreign Policy is the book today. And I'd like to read you just a, um, a couple of things from the back. This is essential reading, says Catherine Adne of the University of Nottingham, who edits um, one of the leading journals in, um, in political science. Ian Hall brilliantly links the domestic imperatives driving current Indian foreign policy to the challenges India faces in a rapidly changing world, and etc. I'll pass this around so everyone can see. And Professor Hall. Thank you so much, Lou, and thanks very much for, um, for looking after these seminars and doing such a fantastic job organizing the seminars with Steve over the last... Um, couple of years or so, um, and we should say as well that we're going to be kind of going out and strong-arming somebody else to look after our seminars next year, so I'm just putting that on the table now with my, my deputy director hat on. I'm going to be coming and darkening somebody's doorway at some point <laughs> and asking you to come and step up and be involved in these great seminars. Um, so I'm going to talk today a little bit about Modi. Not so much about the book necessarily, you know, I don't want to, you know, give away too many spoilers. I want everybody to go out and buy it and so on, so, so I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, but I want to talk a little bit as well about the election that recently occurred in India in, in May of 2019. So the first bit of the talk, I'm really going to talk about the election itself. And then the second bit, I'll talk a bit about what I think Modi was up to, particularly with regard to foreign policy uh, and the relationship between foreign policy and electoral politics, which is one of the things I discuss in the book. And then also I'll talk a little bit about the character of Modi's foreign policy, which I argue in the book has been 
not interpreted entirely correctly, not least by me right at the beginning when Modi first came into power in 2015. I published a little short piece about Modi's emerging foreign policy at that time uh, where I argued that he was essentially being fairly pragmatic in the way that he approached the, the subject. And, but in the book, however, I say, look, I've changed my mind. After five years, I think he's been much more ideological uh, than I thought he was going to be, uh, and I try and set out some of the reasons why. But foreign policy really matters to Modi, I think, disproportionately. And you can get an indication of why just from the photographs. So Modi does like his photographs. He's, a very, he's very conscious of the camera. He knows exactly where it is positioned, and he's very good at playing to... The, the media and playing particularly to um, photography in either in its motion picture form or in still photography. And if we just look there, we can see him up to his usual tricks. So, not, so okay, obviously the first thing that you see when you look at that photograph is just how short Vladimir Putin is. But then the next thing that you see, and he often wears heels too in these kinds of contexts, but the next thing that you see is, is what Modi's doing with the hands of the former ex-Brazilian president and poor old Xi Jinping there. Now, Xi Jinping obviously is very conscious about what he does with his hands when he's shaking hands with people. You always see um, Xi Jinping insisting that somebody, you know, when, they, when he shakes their hands and greets them, he'll put his hand out, but he, he'll, he'll pull it a little bit so that they end up kind of pulling their own hand across their body and looking a little bit like this into the camera, which is quite uncomfortable, whereas Xi Jinping can stand kind of manly and open-chested in front of the camera. So you'll always notice that when Xi Jinping uh, you know, meets anybody or greets anybody, that he will always pull this one particular handshake move, if he can, and, and yank the, the hand across the body like that. But what you've got there with Modi, of course, is Modi seizing those hands, and you can't really see from this on the resolution on this, but if you look at, if you blow that picture up, you can see just how tightly he's gripping those hands. <laughs> right? So he's smiling, and it's all bonhomie, but there's, a, there's power, there's, there's kind of alpha male um, psychology being exerted here, and there's good reason for that. You know, Modi is trying to project a certain kind of image of himself and of India in just in these kinds of photo ops, which he enjoys um, very much. Okay, so I want to go back and I want to have a look at the election campaign uh, and I want to look at why Modi won uh, and, and, the, and about the election itself and what it means for, for Indian politics. So there's been quite a lot of analysis since the election in May and, and some of the analysis is now concluding that we're moving into a completely new phase of Indian electoral politics. We're on to kind of the fourth electoral system uh, and in this fourth electoral system, the first one being very much dominated by Congress in the post-colonial period, the fourth one is going to be dominated by the BJP uh, and by Modi's party and by the Hindu nationalists. Um, it's not that they can win every single seat. It's not that they can even get 50% of the votes. It's that every other party has to, to some degree, define themselves against the BJP and against the BJP's mode of governance. So... Back in May, Modi won. And that was actually, uh, to those of us, I mean, I, I do foreign policy and international relations, not electoral politics, but to me and to some of the people who actually are experts on electoral politics, this was a quite unexpected. If we go back to the end of 2018, 
Uh, it looked as though the economy wasn't doing particularly well. The polls were running against Modi. He, his party, the BJP, had lost a couple of well, three state elections towards the end of 2018 in, in crucial states that they needed to win at the at the Commonwealth level, the union level, federal level. They needed to win them at the national level in order to get back into government, and they lost these three crucial states. Um, Congress had come back. And, uh, Rahul Gandhi, from a relatively low base, seemed to be becoming increasingly popular. Um, and Modi's own personal rating was just slipping a little bit. And the predominant reason for this was that the economy was simply not doing as well as it should have done. So Modi comes into power in 2014, promising higher levels of economic growth, promising that, um, that India was going to grow at somewhere around about 8 to 10 percent instead of the 6 percent towards it had kind of gone towards the end of the, the previous government. But in the event, the Indian economy really only grew at about 6 to 7 percent on average through Modi's tenure, if we can believe the official figures, which were the, the mode of calculating GDP growth changed halfway through Modi's tenure. Uh, if you go back and apparently and you recalculate the previous government's um, economic record, it might, they might have actually done better uh, on this new model than, than on the, the old model. Um, and so the contrast between the previous government and Modi's government actually perhaps is even greater. Um, so the economy wasn't doing very well and jobs were not being created. And that's really the fundamental issue. So the last five years or so, um, I mean, India needs to add hundreds of thousands of jobs into the economy in order to, to deal with the large numbers of young people coming into the labour market, and they just have not succeeded in doing this. So we've got a phenomenon um, of jobless growth, effectively, in India, um, and job creation has been a huge challenge for India. But anyway, the election happens, and the BJP win again. They win more seats than they did in 2014, and in 2014 it was a landslide victory, and a, a really remarkable victory. Um, no party had won uh, a majority in Parliament since 1984, so big difference to the to the, la the previous 20 years or so. Uh, they come back into power in 2014, and then in 2019, May 2019, they won even more seats, 303 seats. A lot of the predictions prior to the election were that, that Modi's party would win around about between 200 and 230, which wouldn't have given them a majority in Parliament. They probably could have stitched together a coalition, um, but if it had dropped below 200, I think Modi's uh, tenure as, as Prime Minister would have probably been in doubt. But in the event, they get 303. Now, they did so on a 67% turnout, which might sound low to those of us who you know, labour away in countries that have compulsory voting, but actually that's the, one of the highest turnouts um, in any election since 1947. The average uh, between 1989 and, 19, and 2009 rather was around 58%. So one of the interesting things is that the BJP has succeeded in, in mobilising more voters, getting more people to the polls. Uh, more women are getting to the polls, more women are being registered as voters, and more women are voting than they have done in the past, and that's a significant, um, a significant contributor to this increased turnout. But voter mobilisation is pretty, pretty high. The, so the governing...
coalition, the National Democratic Alliance, now controls 353 seats of the total in Parliament. Uh, and again, that's a little bit up from 2014. And what was remarkable was that the BJP made inroads in areas where they'd never really had a huge amount of influence. So the northeast of India has very distinct um, linguistic, ethnic um, uh, characteristics, and the BJP really never been able to break into that area. In the south of India as well, again, the BJP has never really had a huge amount of influence. As a northern Indian Hindi belt kind of party, predominantly, and in West Bengal, which had historically been Mamta Banerjee as the chief minister's kind of fortress, um, if you see, I'll show you the map in a minute, the BJP had kind of crept in slowly into West Bengal, it's kind of in, making incursions into West Bengal, slowly but surely taking seats from uh, Mamta Banerjee and some of the other states. And they won in states like Madhya Pradesh, where they hadn't won in the state elections just six months prior to that. Um, Congress did a little bit better than they did in 2014, but in 2014 they were reduced down to 44 seats. They ended up with 52 in 2019, uh, and that's still short of being able to call yourself the official opposition under Indian rules in Parliament. So to give you an indication of what happened, thank you to The Economist for putting together this wonderful graphic. Um, if you look on the left there, you can see 2014. Uh, you can see the, the electoral map and the, the, the um, saffron areas, the orange areas, being where the BJP won, the lighter coloured being BJP allies, the green being Congress and, and other Congress allies and everybody else as well. And you can see this, uh, see on the right-hand side of each one of those maps, you've got the northeast of the country and you've got West Bengal there as well in the east. And what you can see is the BJP creeping across the map eastwards, south and eastwards. So they're doing better and better in the south and they're creeping eastwards as they're making inroads into a, a very different kind of part of India in linguistic, ethnic and political terms than the, the Hindi heartland that the BJP have traditionally dominated. So, quite a big difference then to, uh, to 2014 even, and 2014 itself was a landslide victory. So, um, what we've got to ask then, I suppose, is, um, is what went right. Okay, so what, what was it that, the B, that allowed the BJP to, to come back into power in the way that they did? Well, there's a number of different factors here. I'll concentrate on a few of them, and then I'll kind of segue into this, the topic of the book. So what went right? So money, of course, makes the world go round, and money mattered a lot in this particular election. Don't know exactly how much money was spent, but it could be anywhere up to 10 billion US dollars, between seven and nine seems a reasonable estimate on the things that I've seen. So, so that makes the Indian elections more expensive than US presidential elections, which are already ridiculously expensive. So the Indian elections are a lot more than they should be. Now, a lot of that spending is outside the rules of the, the, the election commission sets. Apparently, the, I've seen some numbers that suggest that the average spend per candidate was about four times more than what you're supposed to spend. So what you're allowed to spend in the rules. And then, of course, we don't know about you know, some of the other stuff as well. A lot of this money that flowed to the BJP was corporate. So there was a number of big corporations that were supporting the BJP. In fact, again, numbers are contested, but probably 10 times more corporate money went to the BJP than went to Congress. 
Then there were, they changed the electoral funding system. Please don't ask me questions about this because it's so complicated and I'm not an expert on it. And probably people in the room who know a bit more than this. But they changed the system so that you, you can buy these things called electoral bonds. And they're the electoral bonds, then the money then flows to the party. So you buy a bond for a particular party. And again, the electoral bonds that were sold were overwhelmingly towards the BJP. And then there were some murkier sources as well. The BJP changed the rules in 2018 about foreign funding. So from 2010 onwards, effectively, you, the, you had to declare if you were getting money from outside of India. So if you were getting money from companies, for example, that were based predominantly somewhere else but had a, an Indian um, subsidiary, if that subsidiary was donating money to one of the parties, you, you had to declare it. And because foreign funding is quite controversial in India, that was a kind of deterrent against foreign funding. Similarly, individuals, people of Indian origin or overseas Indians who might be donating money, that would have to be declared under the 2010 rules. In 2018, they changed the rules so that those people could, could, could donate money much more easily and it didn't necessarily have to be declared in the same way, given the same amount of publicity. So again, it's very complicated. But So allegedly, there's more money flowing in from outside. Now, this happened in 2014 too. I think one of the things that's really marked about Modi's travels around the world is that he has a lot of diaspora events. You'll meet with members of the Indian diaspora in lots of places. Now, lots of politicians do that, but in Modi's case, he was having these big rallies. So when he went to Sydney and Melbourne, he went to All Phones Arena and addressed this big group of, uh, of overseas Indians, diaspora Indians. Um, he did so at Madison Square Gardens in New York in 2014. He's going to do this at the end of, on the 22nd of September this month. He's going to the U.S. to go and address the U.N. Uh, General Assembly. But he's also going to Houston, and he's going to address this event that's going to be called Howdy Modi. <laughs> and Howdy Modi already has apparently 40,000 people going. Uh, they can fit 50,000 in the stadium, uh, but Howdy Modi is going to be a huge thing. I'm looking forward to this because I hope he's going to have a cowboy hat on again. He likes cowboy hats. Um, he's been photographed in the, in, in the past, so I'm hoping he gets a big, you know, rhinestone Stetson or something um, for this event. Anyhow, so a lot. So we. And so one of the reasons for some of these rallies is to go and to thank the diaspora for their financial contributions to the BJP's. Um, success. And bear in mind, some of you know you can't be a dual citizen for in, in India. Um, so a lot of these will be American citizens, or they'll be British citizens, or Australian citizens who are donating money. So effectively, this is kind of foreign funding of the party. So money, BJP almost certainly massively outspent Congress. Uh, a lot of that eight nine billion dollars would have been spent by the BJP. Probably seventy five percent of it, or eighty percent of it, was spent by the BJP. So money. Second thing was um, was media management. The, like in 2014, they wrote they, they used social media incredibly cleverly in order to get their messages through. So not just the social media that are used by the elite, if you like, so the, the Twitter or Facebook, Twitter in particular being an elite platform, also uh, non-elite um, social media, so WhatsApp and like apps like that. Um, there's just in West Bengal alone. The BJP seems to have created or been involved in or sent used or used about 55,000 WhatsApp groups. So in just in that one state, which is not a you know, BJP home state, they used, they created or used 55,000 WhatsApp groups. 
That's, that's an immense amount of blanket coverage of social media. And they, there they can put through their conventional electoral material, but also they can circulate you know, memes and propaganda and cartoons and all kinds of stuff like that to, to voters. And then there was the, 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 what I think we've got to really talk about is, is the suppression, to some degree, of the, the critical voices within the traditional media. Modi doesn't give a lot of media interviews. He did in the run-up to the 2019 election, but he did so with a number of, of interviewers who, frankly, were extremely soft on him. So they, they weren't quite of the kind of character of, so, Prime Minister, tell us about how fantastic you are, the questions, but they were more or less that kind of thing. You can read the transcripts um, online of these interviews. They were, they were quite uncritical, quite sympathetic. Um, they were quite, I mean, in some cases, quite sycophantic, actually. Some critical journalists um, have been... Are much, they're not silenced, but they've been effectively marginalised, pushed out of some of the big media organisations. They've gone into smaller ones um, and set up independently. So the media management has been, you know, both using social media, which Modi's been very adept at, the BJP have, but also, you know, frankly, some bullying, let's call it that, of of the traditional media in order to make them a little bit less critical than they have done in the past. Um, and then the last thing was just the ground game. So the BJP over the last 10 years, certainly, and probably the last 15 years or so, has just built an incredible election, electoral machine. There are p not just party workers who, who um, are able to mobilise and, and monitor, obviously, to some degree, voting at a booth level, but also um, they have people within the BJP who are designated for one page of the electoral roll for that booth. So you've got one worker per page on that electoral roll in that particular booth. So imagine just the sheer number of people that you've got working there who are able to go in and, and bring people to the polls and encourage them to come to the polls to, to send out um, messaging and so on and so forth. That's, um, that's an incredibly impressive thing. Now, what that meant was that they're able to influence particular social groups. So, for example, particular um, subcast groups with, particular, with targeted messaging, using social media, setting up particular groups to target them and to say, you will get X, Y, or Z if you vote BJP. Um, and, you, and as opposed to that, that other group over there who, will, who are you know, benefiting from the current incumbent uh, party who's in state government or at the, at the federal level. So they can, they can target those messages to a very small groups and they can sort of reliably assume that those small groups are not going to share the messages outside of those groups. Uh, and so you can send contradictory messages to different, different groups, different social classes, different, different subcast groups, and all that kind of thing. And they used, but they, that said, they also used a number of unifying messages. So they went out, and there are certain unifying messages for Hindus, at least, that they were able to, to put on the table. So one was, that, was the building of the, of, of the Ram Mandir, the, the Ram Temple at, um, uh, at Ayodhya. So in 1992, there was a um, masjid, a mosque was demolished uh, at Ayodhya the, uh, and the Babri Masjid. And there's talk, there's been talk for the whole period about rebuilding that, and it will be a, a significant symbol of, um, 
how how you want to describe this kind of Hindu supremacy, I suppose, in parts of northern India. So Ram Mandir's huge campaign, it's currently within the courts. We'll expect a verdict at some point soon, and it's, it's highly likely, I think, that during Modi's second term that we'll see the building of this Ram temple. And already next to the site, there are prefabricated pieces of temple waiting to be put together. It's quite extraordinary if you look at the photographs. They're all just lying there, these pieces of stone, carved stone and so on, just waiting to occupy the site and build the temple, which will go up incredibly quickly, I have no doubt. Cow protection uh, was another message that was sent out. You know, again, a unifying message to all the Hindus, cuts across caste lines, cuts across regional lines, cow protection being very important. And then the last time was an anti-immigrant message as well, uh, even to the point of having uh, Amit Shah... Modi's offsider talking about immigrants in very derogatory terms and talking about driving them out of India and so on. So those are the unifying messages, um, plus welfareism. And then what else was there? So the other thing that was there that was important was just was just we'll call it luck. So in the middle of the election campaign, in the middle of February, there's a terrorist attack in Kashmir. I've been relatively quiescent uh, in Kashmir since 2016 when there are a couple of major attacks on military installations which were followed up by uh, Modi sending special forces across the line of control into um, Pakistani administered Kashmir uh, and attacking some militant targets. So this terrorist attack occurs and of course then you know, you've got a, a rallying point um, which you can rally the population around you it, but it was risky. So this terrorist attack was entirely intended to put Modi in, in, in a constrained and difficult situation. How Modi, having ordered these cross-border raids at in, in the end of 2016, effectively had to do something similar or had to escalate and go further in order to satisfy the, the demands of the population that were saying that, you know, we need to do something, we need to deter these acts, we need to punish these people who have committed these acts, we've got to act. So they, they put Modi in a, in a problematic position. He's got to do something. If he does something that's too extreme, it could provoke a you know, cross-border conflict, not just a cross-line of control conflict, cross-border conflict with Pakistan. But if he doesn't do anything, then he's going to be diminished in the eyes of the, some of his voters, particularly his base. He needs to mobilize in order to win the election. And so he's, he's got a problem. Now, this would be bad enough had it not been for the fact that in the election campaign itself, the Modi government had been just prior to it and during the campaign, crowing about the cross-border raids in 2016. So the Uri raids, as they were known after the attack that was the town that was attacked in September 2016, they um, had been made. The Uri raids had been dramatised into a movie. So the movie was released just before the election campaign, uh, in in the middle of January 2019, and. Um, I haven't seen the movie yet, actually, but, um, you know, it's like a swashbuckling kind of, you know, um, war movie. It's got a, you know, uh, a kind of a very brave and intelligent um, uh, Indian, uh, female Indian intelligence officer in it. It's got, obviously, a, you know, extremely manly and brave kind of central character and so on and so forth, all this kind of thing. Now, I say, when I say the government were crowing about this, they were, sell, you know, they, they had uh, a day set aside as surgical strike day commemoration of this particular incident but not just that, it, during the um, during one of the budget speeches in parliament 
the relevant minister had stood up in Parliament and was using lines from the movie in order to sell the budget. So particularly, how's the Josh was this, this line. How's the Josh? How's it going? You know, how's, is everything going well? It was, how's the Josh? He kept saying. Like, so everybody knew it was a line from the movie, and so it was you know, associating the government with the surgical strikes. So the government... Sorry? How good is that? Yeah, exactly. How good are surgical strikes? Uh, it's the same kind of thing. So, so the, the government had really boxed itself into a corner. And so, of course, in the end, Modi had to act and he had to escalate. He had to do something more than just the cross-border raids. And he did. So he orders, as we know, these airstrikes. Um, and they went, not just were there airstrikes or an escalation above using special forces on the ground, but also they used airstrikes into Pakistan proper. So they attacked this area, this town's village called Balakot. Balakot as you can see there, it's just north of Abbottabad, a major garrison town for Pakistan, but also the place where Osama bin Laden was, was, um, was found and killed um, just a few years ago. And so it's not that far away from Abbottabad, but it is actually in Pakistan proper. So again, you do not just airstrikes, but actually going across the line of control. So they bombed this facility. They actually seem to have missed their targets. Um, their aircraft actually flew across, you know, across the line of control, and there's some reports saying that the aircraft actually flew into Pakistan proper. Pakistani air defences didn't detect them for some reason or another. Rather dubious. I'd be worried about that if I was Pakistani Air Force. But anyway, they, they missed. It was an unedifying incident. Pakistan, of course, then had to respond, and it's it it's um it's the next day sent planes towards the line of control to try and tempt the Indian Air Force into, into intercepting them. The Indian Air Force did that, and they then had a plane shot down by an F-16. Now, this whole incident is kind of comically uh, unclear, actually. So the Indians still claim that they shot down one of the F-16s that the Pakistanis were using, um, or even two F-16s. The Pakistanis claim they shot down two MiG-21s, not just one MiG. Um, the facts seem to suggest that only this MiG-21 was lost, but the Indian um, Air Force squadron concerned has had a patch made up that, with Falcon Slayer on them. So Falcon F-16 Falcon is there <laughs> with Falcon Slayer on them, and they seem to be wearing them on their uniforms at the moment to claim that this plane was shot down. Anyway, this was a this is an, a, you know an, another escalation in this, and it could have spun out of control. And it was in a way just fortunate that this pilot was captured by the Pakistani army, and therefore there was a bargaining chip available to Imran Khan uh, to try and de-escalate. So the Indians demand the return of the pilot, and that actually occurs, uh, and then both sides are able to claim victory. Modi has carried out the surgical strikes. Imran Khan has, um, has handed back the pilot and can play the victim. Both sides win. Okay? Both sides, I think, actually derived some quite negative messages from all of this, uh, but I, I don't want to talk about that right now. This allows Modi to change the whole tenor of the election campaign, and it allows him to play to a strength that he had built up, and what, it's what I talk about in the book. So two weeks after Balakov, Modi adds Chowkira, right, watchman, to his Twitter handle. And this just spreads through uh, Indian Twitter. Loads of BJP supporters also call themselves, um, I am also a Chowkira, I'm also a watchman. And they add, they change their name to Chowkira or something like that. Chakira Singh, whatever it is, you know, they changed their name to this. And he, he changes his name. Now, Modi had used this, this idea of him being a watchman 
So, you know, and we've all seen the watchman, in, not just in India, outside. You know, the guy who sits on a plastic chair outside the apartment building or the office building, you know, what, you know, provides some basic security, vets people coming in and out of the building and so on. There's a humble kind of individual, somebody who everybody can identify with to a certain degree. Uh, and he'd used this phrase, I'm a chowkidar, actually multiple times in 2014 and afterwards, uh, to the point where even prior to him tw changing his Twitter handle, the Congress were using it against him. So that cartoon there, obviously they faked and put his head on the body of that rather paunchy watchman. Uh, Chakira Torah means, um, means that Chakira is a thief. Um, so they're asserting that, um, that not only is Modi kind of lazy, but also he's a thief um, and he's corrupt as well. So they, they use this against him, but Modi brilliantly appropriates this uh, and is able to then turn it against his enemies and to, and to use it as a means of mobilizing this. And it becomes a, a prominent theme in, in campaign adverts uh, where, you know, there's actually a, a brilliant, I was gonna, should have showed it to you, but uh, I can't do it on the recording, but there's a wonderful little video that went around on social media, really well produced with this song, with everybody saying, I am also a Chaukidara, I'm also a watchman, um, I stand with Modi and I will, you know, look, uh, I'll try, I'll be a watchman and be watchful and mindful of all the things that are going on in India. So if things are going wrong, if there's, if there's a people throwing things in the river or if there are people, you know, um, going to the toilet in the fields instead of using the new toilets that have been provided, you know, I will say something about that, I will stand up for India and I will act. So it was a, a kind of a really clever piece of messaging. And they also then, the Modi campaign then shifts the, the narrative away from economic development, which was in 2014, and changes it to national security. And it's even to the point of changing the whole structure of the manifesto. The original, the manifesto in 2014 begins with economic development, the one in 2019 begins with national security and then runs through all the other things as well. Sorry, just concerned. did you take this picture on the official account of the body? Hmm? No, no, not this. The picture comes from a Congress social media campaign. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, it's in the background like body is thief. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, the, <laughs> so Congress were using this against him. Yeah. Um, and they used it prior, but once, he, but he kind of he seizes this idea back, you know, this idea that he's the watchman back. He used it before, and Congress uses it against him, and then they, they seize it back. Um, and then just to kind of punctuate this point that this is all about national security and that Modi is the best person to keep keep uh, India safe, he then launches this missile at a satellite that they'd already launched into orbit and destroys it in order to demonstrate that India has anti-satellite capability. So it's sort of doubling down on the national security message. Now, from my perspective, this was great. Okay? He finishes off the campaign by getting China to finally agree to listing Masood Azhar uh, on a UN list of terrorists, which China had held out, had opposed doing for a long period of time, supporting its, um, its all-weather friend, Pakistan. Uh, he gets a big boost in the polls from Balakot and, and everything after that. So we get a, a boost towards... I mean, it's interesting. He doesn't even get more than 50% wanting him back as, as PM, but it is a bump compared to 2014, when he was already massively popular, but he, he gets a bump in all of this. And we get journalists going out and talking to rural voters who ordinarily wouldn't really care about foreign policy and saying, you know, it's Modi's foreign policy that has earned us respect, and that's one of the reasons why I'm going to vote for him. So job done, Modi goes to this cave up there in the Himalayas, and he meditates for a couple of days. Um, he's still got Wi-Fi, he takes his iPad with him. Um, he's got Wi-Fi in the cave, 
and he sits up there in the cave and he gets this wonderful photo. Anyway, so let me go on to this, right? So what was going on here? So the book explores this. Yeah. What, so the, 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 what was going on? Modi unexpectedly pivots towards foreign policy after he gets into power in 2014. We expected him to, to focus on what he promised to focus on, that is economic development. He says he's going to be a Vikas Purush, he's going to be a development man. And yet, straight after getting into power, he suddenly starts interesting himself in foreign policy. And this was odd, because he had really no experience in foreign policy, and so people didn't expect him to do that. Um, he doesn't really, his English isn't particularly good. I mean, we saw Trump highlighted this recently, uh, kind of in that way that Trump does. And... Um, and so we thought he would lack confidence in foreign policy, unlike some of the other, you know, old English-speaking Indian elite. You know, here you've got somebody who doesn't speak English all that well. We thought that might hold him back. So the whole range of reasons. And yet, what ends up happening is he spends a huge amount of time on personal diplomacy. He goes abroad a lot. So I worked out an average of 18 times a year. That's more than most of his, most other, other leaders of this kind do. So I've given you some numbers up there in 2018. Trump goes abroad 20, eight, 10 times. So maybe Trump's not a good example because Trump hates flying and traveling. But, but Xi Jinping is a reasonable example. And I, he goes abroad 13 times. And Modi goes abroad 23 times that year. Um, he's, he'd already, by the end of his first term, got to the number of trips that Manmohan Singh, his predecessor, had done in a full decade. Twice as many trips effectively. He does a whole number of things. He reaches out to South Asia, Look East Doctrine, a whole bunch of things like this. And his allies start talking about him, putting forward this a Modi Doctrine. Um, you know, and they use this new language, the language of the Panch Amrit, sort of five offerings, if you like. And they, they have this whole idiom that they create for his foreign policy. So why would you do this? Okay, Why would you do this? The thing is that most voters, like in India as elsewhere, don't really care about foreign policy. Right? They vote on domestic issues, and levels of knowledge are low. So if we look at the literature, what we find is Devesh Kapoor has found that you know, two-thirds of poor rural voters just don't know when asked about foreign policy issues. Why would they? And linkages between public opinion and foreign policy making are weak. So the question that I had with the book was, well, why is he investing so much energy in foreign policy when... Voters don't actually care about foreign policy. They care about bread and butter issues. They care about gas cylinders. They care about toilets. They care about jobs, all those sorts of things. Um, part of the reason why the linkage is poor is that even Parliament doesn't really even talk about foreign policy. It's very much an executive exercise. So Parliament does debate foreign policy sometimes, but very, very rarely. And the questions that get asked in Parliament are often quite silly, frankly, or really basic things like, you know, uh, when are we going to punish Pakistan? That kind of thing. Of course, some groups mobilise on some issues, Tamils on Sri Lanka and so on, but foreign policy is an elite concern, a very little concern to the public. So why spend your time doing this? The second thing is, why spend all this time doing, things, doing this when nothing really changes? So this is more contentious. My argument in the book is that the basic strategy that India adopts under Modi is not that different from the one that was adopted by the previous government. I could run through all of those different things, but all I've tried to point out there is that actually not a lot has changed. So the relationship with the US is key. Yes, Modi has invested a bit more effort than before, but this, the core, the direction has not changed. Again, on China, direction has not changed. Pakistan, direction has not changed. Yeah, he's been more robust with Pakistan, but the direction hasn't changed all that much. Um, yes, the South Asia, the neighborhood is important, and so on. So not all that much has changed. 
Even things like the nuclear doctrine, which in 2014 the BJP argued that they were going to look at again, they were going to possibly revise the nuclear doctrine, they actually didn't do that. So what the basic strategy, which is what I've called, other people have called multi-alignment, uh, essentially trying to build better connections with a range of different states, manage the problem of China and Pakistan as best they can, um, uh, but essentially try and you know, diversify their, their risks and opportunities while preserving some autonomy at the core is basically what they did. They just described it in a different language. So they used this, a range of Sanskrit and Hindi terms to describe essentially the same strategy, but to use a different language to pretend that there was a kind of Modi doctrine going on. So two things that are weird. One, why invest in foreign policy when voters don't care? And two, why make such a fuss about foreign policy when nothing much has changed? So what's going on then? So in the book, what I argue is that there's, there's ideological conviction and electoral calculation. The first one is... Foreign policy actually matters to Hindu nationalists, even though they don't write about it all that much and they don't write about it in very clear terms. They write about it, they, they care about foreign policy because they're absolutely convinced that India has this particular role to play in the world, that they are going to be a visual guru, going to be a world guru or a guru to others. And they've been promised this right from the beginning of late 19th century Hindu nationalists like Vivekananda and others were writing about this and saying... Once India has recovered its strength, it's not just going to be able to develop itself or to modernise or to be, um, you know, to, to settle all of the problems that it has, but also it's going to have lessons to teach others because India is the repository of wisdom over thousands of years that it can tell others. And it will, be, it will have a huge impact on the world. So it will bring about peace because it can bring about intercultural understanding, interreligious understanding. Um, there are ways of... You know, there are ways that, that Hindus know about, that Indians know about, of managing you know, cultural and interreligious conflict that others don't quite understand or appreciate yet. And once, they, once you know, India has recovered its strength, they can then talk to others. And so, so part of this, but you've got to recast this into Hindu nationalist terms. You have to recast foreign policy in, and away from Nehruvianism in order to try to <coughs> convey this message as best as possible. And then the other thing is that what Modi's doing is he's really just transforming, transforming his own image. So he's going from being a state leader, that is a chief minister of Gujarat, to becoming a statesman. And that that's going to bolster his own personal appeal, and his own personal appeal is incredibly important when it comes to Indian electoral politics. Um, and we know that quite well. Now both of these things challenge the notion, the idea that Modi was basically being a kind of pragmatic or realist type leader. So what do I do in the book then? Is I try and say, try and tease out what the priorities were, what they actually did in foreign policy, and then to point out that some of the interpretations that suggest that, that India was moving in a more realist and less kind of idealist or Nehruvian direction under Modi might actually be wrong to some degree because we don't see the amount of change in some areas that we might see. And instead what we see is an investment in certain activities like personal diplomacy and soft power protection that look odd. So the government, for example, spends a lot of time funding inter-civilizational, intercultural dialogue that are carried on by various gurus and godmen. Now why, again, why invest in those sorts of things unless you, um, unless, you know, why invest in them anyway when you can spend those scarce resources in other areas? They use the party 
particularly to engage in diplomacy. So rather than going through the Ministry of External Affairs and through normal diplomatic channels, they're using BJP representatives to conduct parallel diplomacy to government. Quite an interesting phenomenon, actually. Of course, Chinese Communist Party does this. And they're learning from the Chinese Communist Party, actually. The BJP go on study trips to learn from the CCP in order to try and do these things. Uh, they don't liberalise the economy in the way that we expected. We don't see the trade deals that were going to happen. We don't see um, the, the connectivity, the projects that we thought we were going to see, and so on. And they don't really invest in military power, despite the promises. To. So the, the defence budget as a proportion of GDP actually declines over Modi's time in office, despite his rhetoric about the power of, of Hindu India and all these kinds of things. Yeah. So... So what does the book argue then? Well, Modi's personal investment in diplomacy, in other words, rather than serious investment in, in national power, is quite telling. That what he's doing here is he's trying to reinvent himself um, and make himself into this kind of, you know, this a, almost apolitical representative of India and, and to associate the respect that he's getting from foreign leaders with the respect that India is, is getting. Um, and he talks about this quite a lot, actually, in his speeches. So he gives this wonderful speech at Independence Day. A leader always gives a speech. And he gives a speech in the last Independence Day speech. He, said, he talks about the power of the Indian passport. He says, when I first came to power, when, when an Indian came to an immigration officer and put a passport in front of them, they would get a sneer of disrespect. But now, now people understand the power of the Indian passport and they give respect to the holder of the passport. So it's a restoration of Saman, pride and dignity, uh, in, in this kind of nationalistic concept. And Modi plays on this quite a lot, and saying, I, by doing this, you can, when, when leaders sit with me as they do there, they're not just sitting with me, they're sitting with India, and they're showing due respect to India, and that's a really important thing. And none of this, of course, is new. This is exactly what um, Indian... Sorry, I should, hang on, let me highlight this, because it's actually quite important. This kind of practice of using personal diplomacy and making it about respect for India and, and status and so on is something that actually Indian leaders have been doing from the beginning. It's something that Nehru does to compensate for the lack of national power. And he does it quite self-consciously. It's something that Indira Gandhi did in order to shore up her, her kind of fragmenting domestic base. So this kind of behaviour is actually very much in character for Indian leaders, despite the break that Modi is supposed to be making with the past. So my argument is that what Modi does is he doesn't institutionally reinvent foreign policy and he doesn't even really shift strategy very much. But what he does is he cleverly uses foreign policy to play to particular Hindu nationalistic ideological concerns and to build his electoral base. And that's what allows him to posture as this great defender of India of a Chowkidar in May of 2019. That's what gives him the great strength that he has in the election. Even though, arguably foreign policy hasn't changed all that much. Thank you. The floor is open. Please uh, just catch my eye and I will put you in the queue then. Yeah. Uh, I'll just read, you made the point that has been growth without much employment. Yeah. So my, my question is really how long is the, the use of nationalism and yeah. how long is their policy sustainable? And related to the question, you mentioned that there's a lot of uh, big businesses, 
supporting body. Mm. And it seems to be with this foreign influence act or, or whatever, that it will be largely like Indian enterprises, right? And it's sort of consistent with the fact that he hasn't liberalized the economy. Yeah. So in the sense that he basically keeps the Indian market sort of for Indian firms and so on. So it all boils down one simple question. How long can this, you know, how sustainable is this? Yeah, of course. I'll have some, I'll have some cake. So one, one of the questions I have, I'll hold the second one for later, is um, what's the interest in the diaspora in supporting him so greatly? Are you seeing the, the BJP Congress divide um, in, in the diaspora in relation to this? Okay. So one of the old interpretations about the relationship between business and political elite in India is to say, you know, that fundamentally you've got this kind of basically socialist political elite that is trying to control business and that is trying, in some sense, to, to hold them down, to over-regulate them, that kind of, kind of sense of, of a state that is um, not particularly friendly to business interests. But another interpretation you can put on this is that what ended up happening in the post-colonial states is you ended up with a, with a bunch of large firms, some of which had had relationships with the Congress in the anti-colonial, anti-British um, movement. These large firms that were set up, some of them at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, who end up, because you've got a closed-off you know, market with high tariff barriers and high regulatory barriers, through that post-colonial period, that those businesses um, actually form a kind of codependent relationship with government. Um, and so they're supporting the ruling party. They're, they are funding electoral campaigns. In the past, it would have been Congress. Now it's the BJP. And in return, what they're getting for that is protectionism. So there's a, the, so the, what we've seen then is a, is a Modi government, in a way, again, it's more continuity than change. Yes, he's pro-business, but he's pro domestic businesses and those businesses are protectionist because they can't compete with foreign businesses so they want to see the, the, the preservation of those tariff and regulatory barriers in order to ensure that they are, are able to carry on doing what they're doing you know whether it's cement production or whatever else so they're the ones that are predominantly resisting liberalization but the other thing of course is that, that, that is that we don't see the rolling out of the kinds of liberal economic policies um, under Modi because after Modi gets into power, he, he kind of pivots away to a degree from business, actually. So he's more friendly to business when he's chief minister of Gujarat, arguably, than when he becomes prime minister. Certainly by halfway through his term, he's, what he's done is he's effectively just taken over a whole bunch of, kind of social welfareist programs run by Congress, renamed them, and run them in some cases, and expanded some of them. So uh, he's, what he's effectively doing is, is pursuing a kind of left populist agenda, which undercuts the Congress party as a political force. It removes a lot of the support that will ordinarily go to Congress. How sustainable point that was? Well, that's the big thing. So the question there is, how can he, can he keep that going given the tax receipts don't seem to be going up? So things like demonetization at the end of 2016 were partly about corruption and counter-terrorism and all sorts of things, but they're also about forcing money into banks. And once they're in banks, they were traceable, then they were taxable, then you could bump up your tax receipts. But that doesn't seem to have happened. 
So after a while, you're just going to run out of money for these kinds of welfare programs because you don't have people generating wealth and you don't have people in jobs paying income taxes and all of those sorts of things. So I don't are sustainable. I don't think it is that sustainable. Um, oh, yes, so the diaspora is fascinating. Huge amounts of interest now in the diaspora because of Tulsi Gabbard in the US being supported very much by BJP interests during her, in her campaign for the presidency. It's been an, an article in Caravan recently. I talked to the journalist that was involved in that um, because it delves quite deeply and in a very hostile way, I've got to say, into what the BJP have been up to in its overseas operations. The diaspora um, was very badly treated by the Congress party in, in a way. So the diaspora has always been seen as being kind of, well, in, in, historically was seen as having betrayed India to a degree. You know, they benefited from good education, particularly in the elite institutions like the IITs and IIMs, and, they, and then they left. They took their skills elsewhere. They went to America. They made money, but they didn't come back. So there was a kind of, there was a, a very com mixed view about the diaspora through the post-colonial period, um, you know, people would be proud of the fact that, that people had gone away and made money and they were successful, but on the other hand, they left India behind and they, hadn't, then they weren't reinvesting in India. Then Congress starts to reach out to them in the 1990s as a source of foreign direct investment and, of course, as a source for, for money. But they don't really succeed in, 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 in aggregating the, the diaspora in the same way. The BJP very early on in the early 2000s recognised that they're, they're potentially a force to be mobilised because they've not really been touched by Congress. So the diaspora is still split, absolutely. And it's not just split between Congress and BJP. It's also split, split regionally, linguistically, caste-based, and so on. Like if you, so if you talk to Archana Singh, as you, you know, you know, the honorary consul here, she will say to you that you know, she has to attend... <laughs> dozens and dozens and dozens of diaspora events because they're, you know, one of them is the Punjabi, you know, um, Restaurant Keepers Association one, and they will not have anything to do with the Gujarati Restaurant Keepers Association groups and so on. So there's lots of these diaspora clashes which exist. The BJP has come along though and said, we want to organise you, you know, we're going to help you to organise into more coherent national groups, and they've been very energetic through things like the Overseas Friends of the BJP in taking a, a long-term interest. And then they've used other groups, like the VHP, the Shwa Hindu Parishad, for example, which, you know, again, you know, they only appeal to a certain section, but they've these groups are growing overseas in the US, in Australia as well. And they, again, are mobilizing voters for a, a kind of broad cultural Hindu nationalist agenda, and then they're swinging them behind the BJP. So we don't have very good numbers on this, but, but the, the, uh, the understanding is that probably 80% of the, of the diaspora support the BJP. And they're doing so really because they, they believe that, you know, they might not like Modi, but that they think that Modi can deliver growth, prosperity, all of those things, but also pride. And so that thing about the power of the passport, even when they're not necessarily Indian passport holders anymore, there's still that idea that, you know, finally we have a leader who can, we can hold our heads up high. And you saw that very clearly in those diaspora events in Sydney and Melbourne. We'll see it again in Howdy Modi um, in Houston as well, I think. But are there also commercial... Oh, sorry, we've got six people in the queue. Oh, sorry. Got to go ahead. 
Um, okay, so we've got uh, next up Colin, Diego, and Kai. So maybe we'll take three of them together. That's right. Sure. And, and, we'll time and I'll be brief. So, Colin? Um, I'm interested in the relationship that you're drawing between foreign policy and domestic policy. Yeah. I get the internationalist bit about foreign policy, restoring India's rightful place in the world and all that. But if you're playing that into an electorate, which you said, I think, a few years earlier, two-thirds of people in rural India don't care, how do you play, how do you leverage off that foreign policy achievement against an electorate like that? Is it that the electorate is becoming more interested in foreign policy? Or is it not foreign policy they're interested in, it's internationalism that they're interested in? Mm. Okay, Diego? Thank you, and my question actually goes in, I have one link to that. Um, 23 visits are quite a lot, and, and I remember one of a Chilean president used to travel a lot, and he had to justify them. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, I travel, but I bring back free trade agreements, mm -hmm. useless, but... So he had to actually connect to that electorate, that they were saying, oh, you're always away, but he said, I bring something. But it seems like sometimes it's just to go and see the diaspora. How is that? And secondly, what does, did the number of flights or trips change from the first administration? Or it was the same, like a lot of drugs? It's pretty consistent. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation and also the book. Yeah. Um, I like, you know, I'd like to push you a little bit because you present a wonderful case about the nationalism. You know, it's not new. Then you told, you know, the use of foreign policy is not new. But what's new? That's I'm not sure. Then you stop here. Should I buy a book in order to know what's new? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason I'm asking because you know uh, the rise of modism is not a you know isolated event because mm -hmm. you know because in your presentation you did not talk about the populism yeah. because the rise of populist leader actually is not only in India even in China in in US. So do we see some structural reason why those kind of populist mm -hmm. leader rise? You know. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so that's sorry. It's another book. For yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the tricky one. So I mean, you know, the thing is that the right. So you personalist politics or populist politics um, well predate Modi in India. So you could argue that Indira Gandhi in the late 1960s is a kind of paradigmatic populist in lots of ways. But Modi's not behaving all that different. In, in lots of ways, to that kind of paradigmatic Indian populism. Plus, he gives it this Gandhian spin, right? So, although he's not a Gandhian in any great sense, he does hold Gandhi up as an as a as an example. Not just because he's a Gujarati, but because he he kind of believes in Gandhian poli political mobilisation. So, while he doesn't endorse the ideological agenda, he sees politics very much as being uh, social mobilisation around particular campaigns. So it's not like institutionalized action. It's much more about this popular social mobilization around a campaign, whether that's a, you know, cleaning the Ganges or whatever else it is. So, so he's running together lots of different kind of well-established uh, Indian practices, like the popularist welfareism that we see, um, that you know, Indira Gandhi in a way kind of, kind of um, um, uh, pioneers. And then he's using new populist techniques. So I would say things like the ignoring of the conventional media and use of social media. So he doesn't give interviews. He doesn't give press conferences at all. 
during, during his first term. So he'll give very, very carefully uh, policed uh, interviews just in the run-up to the election, but nothing else prior to that, and nothing subsequent, and no press conferences. So no questions from the floor from journalists at all. And instead he communicates using Twitter, using Facebook, using WhatsApp, sending personalised messages. And we've seen that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting uh, element of technologically enabled populism, bypassing your media and going directly to the voter. Boris Johnson's already doing that. He's not giving interviews either, thank God, because he's been hopeless at them. And instead, he's been, what's been really noticeable is the release of these little snippet videos. The British government's going to do this, and Brexit will be lovely. No criticism, no questioning, no. Yeah, it's quite clever. So, the, so yes, there's, there are relationships, but they're also long-standing things. But what's the new question I'll come back to? Hopefully, or maybe not. Um, I still want to tempt you into reading the book. Right? Find out. Um, justification. Originally, justification for the trips were FDI, and, and for a while, as the FDI was flowing in the first two years, um, that was okay. And then late, but it sort of pivots later on to being seen, and being respected, and being present. So Modi goes to Biarritz, um, to a G7 meeting, for example, and you know that's seen as a. And, and some of the media say this is the first time an Indian leader has been invited. No. Not true. Um, Man Singh was invited and so on, but uh, there was quite clear that he wants to be seen in those kinds of contexts. And so it just becomes much more about the optics than about the, the payoff. Um, and then, okay, the foreign policy and domestic politics linkage. So it, it's, kind of, again, it's kind of mediated. So um, they don't care about particular foreign policy issues or particular decisions and so on. Um, but what they care about is that you've got a prime minister, these voters seem to care about, that they've got a prime minister who is being active out there in the world and standing on that stage and, and being treated with respect and so on, and is, being, is, is present in the room and present at the table. And that seems to, and that, what that does is then that reinforces Modi's own personal image and standing in the electorate. And that seems to, that, that's an enormous, apparently, okay, so some of the research that's been done on this has suggested that the BJP would, be, would not really be anywhere near as successful without Modi at the helm, that Modi's personal appeal is carrying them through both the 2014-2019 elections. And a good figure of this is that, so Centre for the Study of Developing Societies in Delhi did a poll with it, and they found that 32% of voters would vote for another party if Modi wasn't there. So um, Modi's using foreign policy to boost his own standing, um, knowing that voters still don't care about foreign policy. That's my... That's enough, 32%, just about, in the uh, oh, Indian yeah, system. Yeah, absolutely. That would get you there. Okay, great. Um, so we've got Caitlin and our colleague here, and then I'll yes. take one. Um, so I'm interested in the relationship between Modi, or where does the foreign policy machinery sit in all of this? And, and you seem to suggest that the NEA has been potentially marginalised. Um, are we likely to see that continue? What does that mean for foreign policy delivery going forward? Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, my name is Farhad. I came from Waseda University in Tokyo. Um, it was a very informative presentation. I have a question on um, Indian economy. So when we are looking at the uh, figures in the first half of 2019, the GDP growth rate slipped to um, below 5%. That was more than 7%. So there are several reasons. The main reason is the collapse of the automotive sector, yeah. 
in India and secondly the accumulated non-performing loans and non-performing assets of the uh, banking sector especially and thirdly um, reduced share of investment in the GDP so the reduced share of investment is coming from the private sector mm -hmm. domestically and also FDI yeah. although the investment experienced the growth but the share of it is reducing so my question is that you mentioned that the foreign policy is not the main concern of the voters. What about the economy? Mm. How much it is affecting the popularity of the mm. So, I'll take one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and hopefully that won't be the last one. We'll still have time. So I, um, I think it's a fantastic uh, thesis. Um, I want to, I want to, um, want to challenge just a little bit of your conclusion. So, uh, for example, I want to read the um, Modi, when he was a younger man, cut his teeth as a volunteer for the RSS, the massive Hindu nationalist uh, civil society organization. I think your analysis feeds right into this idea that or, uh, is really well supported. So the vision and mission statement of the RSS, right? Um, for, for the welfare of entire mankind, Bharat, which is what they call India, must stand before the world as a self-confident, resurgent, and mighty nation. Uh, expressed in the simplest terms, the ideal of the Song or the Hindu nationalist family is to carry the nation to the pinnacle of glory through organizing the entire society. Verily, this is for the one real national as well as global mission, if ever there was one. So, I he when I hear you talking, I hear you talking about Modi uh, really absorbing this mission and trying to push it forward. And I think the story is possibly a little more interesting and darker than you've, uh, than you've indicated. I think something has changed. Um, so when you look at especially the diaspora, one of the things um, Modi might be viewed as doing is stirring up the base overseas, you know, as, as you've talked about. And I think um, one of the implications from that is you get organizations like the Infinity Foundation in the United, in the United States. You know, Rajiv Mahotra has been, uh, has been spending his fortune um, trying to, you know, really vigorously trying to influence the way Hinduism is taught in U.S. universities, trying to influence the way India is viewed. Um, and it's very much a Hindu nationalist view that, that erases Muslims from the story, that, um, you know, has certain other aspects that, uh, that are a little more what we might call the dark side. And so, you know, this is involved... Um, massive campaigns trying to uh, pressure deans to crack down on, say, Wendy Doniger uh, in her, you know, a historian uh, of Hinduism and uh, in her books and trying to trying to make life difficult for her because she's not offering the, um, the orthodoxy according to Hindu nationalists. So I think something has changed. I don't think Congress was stirring up the world in that way and trying to pressure. So I think there's an ideational uh, struggle going on that your book indicates, but you yeah. haven't uh, mentioned. So, in reverse order again. Um, so, a lot, I talk a lot about this, the Hindu nationalist understandings of international politics in the book and try and relate those. Because part of the argument is that the conception of foreign policy, the conduct of foreign policy, is much more ideological than, and much more related to a lot of these ideas that you're talking about. And you're absolutely right. The mobilization of the diaspora is really interesting. And the, and it relates then to, weirdly, to Caitlin's question too. So there's a lot of discussion in the RSS, but also in the BJP and by the Modi government too, saying, oh, yes, you know, we don't have a lot of diplomats, so diplomatic services fewer than 1,000, probably around 900, you know, uh, individuals, and that's tiny, but we have the diaspora, and the diaspora are ambassadors, and they, and everywhere, everywhere one, sees, one sees one of the part of the diaspora, right, when they 
when they, because they dress, because of the way they worship, because of the way they cook and eat and so on, that is an ambassador for Indian culture and Hindu culture rather, and that Hindu culture is going to well, is, is spread in that way. And in fact, we don't really need to invest in the instruments of the state because we've got all of that. We've got, you know, ten millions of the diaspora abroad. And so you're right. And that can, in this way, though, that can kind of turn into a slight, into a kind of comp- slightly compromising position where the, the argument, where, in a way, what the Hindu nationalists are arguing is a little bit similar to what, the, again, the Chinese Communist Party is arguing. In other words, that no matter where you are, no matter what passport you have, you are still Chinese. And we are your protector, but we're also your watcher. And the same thing, in a way, the BJP, I think, is, and I think it's self-conscious, actually, is, is in a way sort of hinting at a similar kind of thing. So regardless of the way you vote, the regardless of even, you know, we, we are your protector. And, your, and they're a long way behind the, that Chinese conception, but they're kind of, in some ways, drifting in that direction as well. And it goes, you know, and ideologically, it's very, it is completely consistent with, you know, what's what people like Aurobindo and Vivekananda at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, were also arguing the same thing. You know, when we go abroad, we're ambassadors for our culture, our country and our culture, and, and when we're seen, we're admired by others, and, and all of that kind of thing. It just, it, it can morph into the kinds of things that you're talking about. Um, the economy should matter a lot more. If you look at the polls prior to the election, it did matter a lot more, and yet, the, the, I think there's just simply a lack of faith in, uh, in, in the opposition to provide a viable alternative uh, was part of it. And then part of it was also just, you know, hope. We invest hope in Modi that Modi will solve these problems. Um, we know that it hasn't gone well, but there were reasons for that, and now we invest, we invest hope. So it's, it's, it's hope versus reality, I think. It's, it's that simple, I think. Um, all the problems that you're talking about, absolutely. There's impending banking crisis... Um, the automotive sector is looking really messy. Um, yeah, a whole range of economic problems. Uh, and they haven't been addressed by the, the relatively peaceful, piecemeal economic reforms that have been brought in so far. So one of the big questions is, are we going to see a you know, proper reform agenda in the economic area? Um, foreign policy machinery, yeah, no. But the, the MEA has always been marginal anyway. But not just that. It's, so foreign policy has been driven from the Prime Minister's office right from the beginning, right from when Nehru was in power. And Nehru was his own foreign minister too. And he also picked most of the... He personally interviewed many diplomats in the late 1940s when he was... He actually... When you know people would come to join... And it's from university. They'd be 22 and then they'd be ushered into an office and there would be Nehru himself to conduct the interview to join the Indian Foreign Service. So what he did then is he effectively put his ideological stamp on the Foreign Service... And that made it then more of a mouthpiece or an instrument of the Prime Minister than anything else. So it's always been in a subordinate position, I would argue. Um, later on, the PMO has taken over more. And we've got the creation of a National Security Advisor. And we've got more. And, and then you also have a Prime Minister who believes very much in his own judgment on foreign policy. So as a consequence, uh, you know, a too small, ridiculously busy actually talented, I think, these days, um, MEA and Foreign Service is, is no longer and probably has never really been in control of foreign policy. Um, and that is, that's a problem. But, but, you know, let's face it, right, we've got a, a diplomat, you know, we've got Jai Shankar who's moved over from being Foreign Secretary, head of the Ministry of External Affairs, to now being Foreign Minister. And, um, you know, t- 
to some degree he might well be still an institutional or an advocate for his institution. Maybe. Okay, we've got time for one more quick question from Funk. Um, before we take the question, oh, sorry, okay, two more quick questions. Um, a little housekeeping. Uh, they've asked us to take all our dishes and plates and things up over here and just set them neatly to make life easier. So, Funk? Yeah, look, so there, there, are, um, there are signs of change in this current administration. He's already been on the road again, and I think things are... He's pushed, interestingly, pushing, offering money to the Russians to develop Vladivostok, um, you know, offering a line of credit. India offered a line of credit to Russia. Right? That's pretty major. But then also to stand up in front of Putin and talk about the rules-based order, Again, that's kind of saying to the Russians, "You're there, and we're there." And so there's a, there's a there's quite there's a slightly more bold approach that's being taken so far. He's been bold on on domestic social issues that are important to his base. So Article 370 in Kashmir uh, is one example. Um, triple talak, the, the divorce practice, banning that is important. The Babri Masjid. I think the, a uniform civil code, so putting all marriages and inheritance under the same rules, because um, they're different for different communities, that's, that's possible that it will change. And then I think we will see some economic reforms as well. So I think it's second term he will be bolder. And, you know, again, electoral politics matter. By the end of 2020, he might be in control of the upper house. And that will give him a huge amount more power, particularly in the economics space. So it, he had to win the second term because it was going to take him that long to control the upper house. So there is a there is actually a strategy that's uh, that's unfolding here. Um, maybe we should talk the, the sort of the ideological stuff. I could go into in a lot of detail, but I'm not sure I want to to do that too much. Is it luck or is it genius? Well, I think it was lucky. I think I think we could have predicted that there would be an attack, right? Because uh, because those parts of the Pakistani state that support those kinds of groups uh, would like to see Modi in power. Right? Because having Modi in power means that they can, they've got somebody they can demonize in India, and that allows those bits of the army, those bits of the state, to remain in control of Pakistan. Okay? The old joke about, you know, states usually have armies, but in Pakistan the army has a state, is 
to a large degree, kind of true. So, yeah, we could have predicted that was going to happen. But I think it still put Modi in a difficult position, and he had to carefully calibrate what he was going to do. Um, and that, was, that, I think, was actually a much more difficult period to negotiate than, than some people kind of appreciate. And it, that crisis could have gone badly wrong, right? Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of things I could talk about as well, but I'm not going to talk about because I think I've spoken far too much already. No, Thank you, Lou. Um, there are some extra questions, so are you going to be able to stay for a couple of yeah. minutes? Okay, and yeah. I encourage you to come speak to Professor Hall. Please join me in thanking him for a great presentation.